Man, I miss that voice of Dewey on Sundays. Good morning, Troy. Pastor Davey's so lucky hearing that every, every Sunday morning. Good to be back with you guys. I think it's about once every three months I, I get the joy of being back here and seeing all these faces, some, some of which I've known for years, some that are new, and that brings me even more joy that the Word of God is going out and people are hearing it and, uh, and coming to this church. Uh, you, got, you guys have been so blessed. I mean, I don't need to tell you. I know you know that. You've, heard, you've now heard the entire Old Testament, right? From, from 50,000 feet, they say, you know, from way up high, just overlooking everything. Um, what a blessing that is to have a, have a study like that, to have that kind of a foundation in the Word of God. Now, since I've known Pastor Davey, usually after he, uh, after he, during the summer, usually he goes into summer psalms. But this year, he, I think he must have wanted to finish the Old Testament with you guys, so he did that. And then I found it interesting, I didn't get to ask him why, but he went to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, the last couple weeks, to talk with you about the spiritual battle. Well, I don't, I don't think I need to ask him why, really, because I think that, uh, obviously, that's, that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's, it's, it's central. I mean, you could know the whole Old Testament inside and out, but if you don't know that, that you're in a battle with forces, if you think you're in a battle with the guy across the street who's driving you crazy, and that, that's your battle, then, then you're, you're sorely mistaken. He made that clear the last couple weeks, and I just want to remind you of that right off the bat. From Ephesians 6, he says, For we do not wrestle, this is Paul writing to the people in Ephesus, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I just wanted to bring that back. I know you guys have heard that the last couple weeks, and, and as I thought more about that and I listened to Davy's message, I think sometimes I'm guilty, and I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'm guilty of, of forgetting that. I get caught up in the battles of the world that are all around me and I think that's what I need to battle right now and I often forget I can kind of push off to the side the spiritual battle and kind of put that behind me thinking well I got that covered sometimes I have an attitude I don't know about you but I have an attitude of self-sufficiency like I got this I can handle this and that's good right it's good to be self-sufficient we want people to grow up and become adults and be self-sufficient but when it comes to spiritual matters if you think you've got this all on your own you're in big trouble. We've been singing and talking about all morning about Jesus Christ, who we, we must depend on. And I think we're going to see that in our text today. I was When uh, Kelly announced this morning that Pastor Davey had uh, spoke about the gospel to two Marines, and they, they seemed really interested in listening, as I thought about that and thinking about this idea of self-sufficiency, thinking that we can do this on our own, I thought, man, the Marine Corps, imagine trying to share the gospel with Marines. I mean, wonderful, wonderful people who have to have an attitude of self-sufficiency, right? I mean, they have to, you know, if a Marine commander says to one of his people, he says, get this done, and the Marine says, yes, sir, he, he's, he's taking that on. He said, it will get done no matter what. What will happen, it, it's going to get done. Marines have to have an attitude of self-sufficiency. We can do things. And so, as I thought about that this morning, I thought, man, he's... He's really out there doing it with even the Marine Corps, getting Marines to, God's working in the hearts of Marines through Pastor Davey. Um, people who, if anybody would think that it, they can take on anything by themselves, it would be the United States Marine Corps. But Pastor Davey, through the work of God, is getting through to them. So I, I think of this idea of self-sufficiency because I think it's so dangerous spiritually. It's so good in so many ways, but if you think that you've got this spiritual battle whipped all by yourself, you might be in a little bit of trouble, and I'm going to use uh, Peter. We always seem to pick on Peter, but I'm going to just use Peter kind of. A, I think he's kind of the poster child for this. Don't worry, Lord, I got this, right? I mean, remember, remember when the Lord told the disciples that he was going to be arrested and go on the cross? What did Peter do? 
That's right. Oh no, Lord. Oh no, I will never let that happen. Remember what he said to him? Pretty strong rebuke. He said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to my father's will. Did Peter take that rebuke and run with it? Mm -mm. John 18 says he cut off the ear of a soldier when they tried to arrest Jesus. Peter thought he could handle this battle against flesh and blood right there on the scene. But remember, we're in a spiritual battle. How about in Luke 22? Um, I wrote this, I put this in my notes here because I want to get this right. Remember when Jesus said uh, to Peter, Simon, 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 behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Remember when he said that to Peter? Peter came back with, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you, right? Don't worry about me, Lord. I, I got this covered. I think Peter was the poster child for self-sufficiency. But remember what Jesus then said to him in verse 34. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows this morning, you will have denied that you even know me three times. And I think most of you all know what happened. Out of fear that night, three times Peter denied that he even knew Jesus, just like he said. So when we try to go into a spiritual battle with an attitude of, I got this, it's a, it, I think Peter's kind of first-hand proof as to how that works out. So today, though, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about, it. we're going to go into the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. I just picked eight verses. Uh, the fifth stanza, there's 22 stanzas in Psalm 119, uh, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, if you didn't know that, 22, and then there's eight verses within each stanza, so there's 176 verses in this beautiful, beautiful love letter uh, concerning the Lord. Beautiful, beautiful Psalm, right? Psalms are songs. Imagine having these words sung over and over and over and ingrained in your heart. I hope as you, I was thinking about it this morning as we listen to other music, as we listen to secular music, we've got these, these words ingrained in our heart and soul that we hear on the radio. And then I think, man, if you had these words ingrained in your heart and soul over and over, this is what you heard. So we're going to look at a pretty exciting text of Scripture. So if you're someone here today who, who longs to know the Lord, um, longs to please the Lord and to bring glory to his name, then this is a powerful text that I hope will penetrate your heart today. So as we go through these verses, keep a couple things in mind. See if you hear an attitude of, oh, I got this, Lord. I'm good. I got this. See if you, see if you hear that kind of an attitude. Or see if you hear an attitude of total submission and dependence upon the Lord. Two, listen, listen also for what the psalmist is depending on the Lord for. Pay close attention because he's, he's going to ask him in almost every verse to do something. So pay close attention to that. And if you're not someone who's desiring, or if you, okay, sorry, I missed, missed one of my lines there. That happens at Center Baptist Church occasionally. We miss one of our notes. Um, so anyway, I hope that you hear today. I hope you hear in the words of the psalmist. I hope you hear in this prayer. I hope it sounds familiar to you. I hope when you pray to the Lord, you're, you're hearing yourself in the psalmist here. And if you're not, I hope that you'll do a little introspection. And, and hopefully this psalm will help you grow a little bit closer to the Lord in your relationship. So let us pray. And then we'll, then we'll read our text. So, Father in heaven, uh, we come before you today, as we've heard already this morning, before the message. We've heard over and over through song and through the reading of the call to worship and the scriptures that uh, you are our Savior. You are our, our salvation depends on you and you alone. So, Father, help us as we, as we go through this word today, this, this amazing, amazing song of prayer 
that, was, that you have put in your holy word for us to know. Help us, Father, to understand this text today. Help us to understand it. and Help, it, help us to open our eyes, open our hearts, to see the wondrous things in your word. The psalmist who wrote this chapter said, there's wondrous things in your word, Father, and help us to see those today. Help these to become the meditations of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read the eight verses all together, and then we'll go through them one by one. So I'm reading from the ESV, Psalm 119, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Incline my heart, I'm sorry, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. And behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, Lord, give me life. So, first thing I want to, we're going to go through the first three verses here, and I hope that through these first three verses, you'll see that the psalmist humbly depends on God to teach him and lead him in his ways. I think that'll be pretty clear as we go through this. So verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Psalmist starts out with the words, teach me, O Lord. When someone, when we ask someone to teach us something, we're naturally coming to them in a state of humility, right? We're essentially admitting need. Being here in a church is a pretty good indicator that you know you need the Lord, but by no means does it mean that you really, truly understand your need for the Lord. I, I think there's many people out there who come to church on Sundays to check the box, say, I did that. Somehow, they're still depending on themselves, thinking, well, if I go to church on Sunday, that kind of crosses out all the bad stuff I did all week. It's kind of a trade-off that people are still kind of relying on themselves. But as we're going to see in the Word of God, that's not at all how it works. Unlike that person... Unlike that person, the psalmist is admitting need here and total dependence. I don't have needed knowledge, Lord. And he cries out, teach me, God. God, you have what I lack. He genuinely longs. He genuinely longs to learn the ways of God. Hmm. When we come to someone like that, we honor that person. Telling them you recognize what they have, that's an honor to that person. When someone comes to you and says, teach me, that's an honor. You're saying, I want to spend my time at your feet, sitting, learning your teaching. That's what the psalmist is saying here. And he's crying out for it. Not only is the psalmist doing that here, when we come to someone and asking them to teach us, we're also coming to them saying, I believe that you're willing. I believe that you're willing to teach me. Not only are you able, but I believe you're willing. So the psalmist is crying out here, submitting to the Lord. He's valuing, and he's saying, Lord, I believe you. I believe in your ways, and I believe that you're willing to teach me. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? That we have a God that's so personal that we can call on him to say, teach me your ways. Lead me in your understanding, Lord. That's an amazing thought that we have a God like that that we serve. And the psalmist knows it, and he's come to him. 
I'm going to jump ahead to the New Testament a little bit here because I want you to see just how God answered this point blank. In the New Testament, we see in uh, Matthew chapter 5, I want to read these words that uh, are written in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, isn't it interesting here the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth as he's teaching, teaching the ways of God. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who are spiritual, who understand that they are spiritually, or they're in spiritual poverty. They have nothing to offer God, nothing to get right with God on their own. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth as he's teaching the Beatitudes are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know that they can't do it themselves, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the first words he taught. What do we hear from the psalmist here? Teach me your ways, Lord. Teach me your ways. The psalmist is submitting. Listen for the hunger in the psalmist's plea. In these three verses, in verse 33, we hear, Give me, uh, teach me, Lord. Teach me, O Lord, your ways. In verse 34, we're going to hear, Give me understanding in your ways. And then in verse 35, he's going to say, Lead me. Lead me in your ways. I mean, can he beg any more for the Lord's ways? Can he submit any more to the word of the Lord? And what's he asking to be taught? The way of your statutes, it says here in verse 33. The way of your statutes. In this beautiful Psalm 119, there's, there's eight different words that are used to describe like statutes here in verse 33. But other words you'll see, there's eight words used over and over and over in this love letter about God and his ways. You'll hear the word law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, word, ordinances. And there are little differences within each word. But today we're just going to summarize them. These are the ways of God that the psalmist is talking about. I love your ways, Lord. No matter what word he uses, essentially we can say, Lord, I love your ways. That's what he's saying. Verse 33, he goes on to say that he wants to keep it until the end. He wants to keep the, the, way, the ways of the Lord in his heart till the end. He's saying there's no other teaching that I'll ever want than yours. I want to be able to keep it all the way to the end of my life. That'd be good wisdom for the Galatians, wouldn't it? Remember in chapter 1 of Galatians and Paul's writing them, he's astonished how quickly they've turned away from the word of grace that they've been taught to another gospel. Paul, sa or, or, Paul says, is, is there even another gospel to turn to? Like we sang this morning, remember when Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other place to go and the psalmist knows it. He wants to learn the ways of the Lord and he wants to keep it until the end of his life. That's what he asks him in verse 33. The psalmist humbly depends on God to teach him and lead him in his ways. Verse 34, he's asked to be taught in his ways. Now, verse 34, he says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. He wants not only to know the ways of God's, but he wants a deep, profound, spiritual understanding of God's ways. This isn't just a half-hearted attempt here. I hope you don't hear that in his voice. He wants to keep this with his whole heart. Again, he's submitting to God, asking him to open his eyes, open his ears, open his mind so that he can have a profound understanding of God's word. I hope when you come to church, that's the attitude you come with. I hope that's the attitude we have every day. That we come to the Lord wanting to have a profound understanding. I just don't want to be able to say I know the Old Testament a little bit. I want to understand God's ways. And that's what we hear in the psalmist here. 
If you were to go back to verse 18 in Psalm 119, as I mentioned earlier, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. The psalmist knows the wonders of the law of God, and he's craving more and more of it. He wants to deeply understand this. Remember God's command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This isn't a half-hearted devotion here. This isn't one foot in, one foot out. This is deep devotion. He wants to keep it till the end, and he wants to keep it with his whole heart. So he's asked God so far to teach him and give him understanding. Thinking back to last week, as Pastor Davey talked about putting on the full armor of God, I don't think this guy has any trouble in the morning getting up and putting on the full armor. I think he can't wait to get up and put on the full armor of God listening to the way he, he talks here. Again, the psalmist humbly depends on God to teach him and lead him in his ways. Verse 35, I mentioned this earlier, he said, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Don't we let our GPSs lead us around? I mean, do you submit to your GPS? I do. When I'm in a foreign place and I don't know where I'm at, I, I submit fully to the GPS. I trust the GPS to lead me. Is our home heaven? If our home's heaven, maybe we should be submitting to God to let Him lead us while we're here on earth. When I, when I think of leading, I think of my dog that I have at home that I, that I put this collar on his neck and I take him for walks and he can't wait to go on that walk. He can't wait to be led by me. Occasionally he pulls and wants to go somewhere else. But, but is that our attitude towards the Lord? Do we, are we saying, Lord, I think the psalmist is. I think he's saying, put a collar on me. Just take a hold of me. Lead me in your path. That's where my delight is. That's where I want to go. I think that's what he's saying here. Teach me. Let me understand your word. I want to know it deeply. Just lead me. Take me and lead me. I don't hear anything about, I got this, Lord. I'm good. Thanks. I don't hear any of that here so far. He says, the Lord's ways are his delight. If we go back to Psalm 1, Psalm 1, chapter 2, what does that say about the, the one who delights in the law of God? It said, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Tree planted by streams of water. Again, we need, we need to humbly depend on God, to teach us and lead us in his ways. Jump ahead to the New Testament again in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And we know this, and we know that we have come to know him if, if we keep his commandments. What is the psalmist most eager to do so far in the first three verses that we've looked at? He's most eager to know the Lord, keep his commandments, and keep them to the end of his life. And John's writing the same thing later. And we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. The psalmist seems to understand already that, that his heart's desire is to keep the word of the Lord. And, but he, he's also submitting here saying, Lord, I depend on you to keep your word. Are you in full dependence on the Lord to keep his word? Second thing I think we can see here in the next three verses is we depend on God. We depend on God to change our hearts and guard our minds. This isn't a matter of pulling up our bootstraps and doing it ourselves, is it? 
See how this, what the psalmist has to say here in verse 36. Verse 36, the psalmist says, I think we're going to see a shift here, so pay attention to the, to the shift. The psalmist is going to add some introspection about himself here in this text. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. When he says, incline my heart to your testimonies, isn't he admitting that his heart is not inclined that way? Why would he ask the Lord to incline his, his heart to the Lord's testimonies if his heart was already inclined that way? I think he's saying, my heart isn't inclined that way, Lord. He's recognized from within. That's, that's not my heart. The heart that I'm seeing and I'm learning about through your law, through your ways, that's not the heart that I have. I need you to incline my heart that way. Again, he's submitting. God, lead me, teach me. Now incline my heart to your ways. In fact, he's also going to go on here to tell us what his heart is inclined to. What does he say? Verse 37. Verse 36, I'm sorry. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Anybody in here have a problem with selfishness besides me? The psalmist knows he has a problem with selfishness too. He's looked at God's word and he doesn't see that. But then he looks at himself. He sees this love, this love that goes out. But what does he see in himself? Selfishness. I see that in myself all the time. It, it tears you up when you, when you know God's ways and then you see your ways. It's heartbreaking. I don't know if some of you have experienced that. I hope you have. If you're here today, it's probably because you have experienced that. The psalmist is crying out again, incline my heart your way. I don't like my heart. How does he know the inclinations of his heart aren't like God's? Because he's... Because God's provided us with his ways. He's provided us with his law. If he didn't provide us with that, how would we know? How would we know? Just how wicked our hearts are. So what's the, what's the law doing, though, to the psalmist here? I think, one, he's, he's making him want more of it. The more we come to know the law of God, the more we understand it, it makes you want more of it. Teach me, Lord. Give me an understanding. Lead me. He wants to observe it with his whole heart for the rest of his entire life. Isn't that what he said? He's saying, I want it to be my everything. Your path, when you lead me on your path, that's my delight. That's the place that I delight in, Lord. What else does the law seem to be doing to the psalmist here? It's also making him see the differences between himself and God. Right? He's seeing that there's a big difference, as we just talked about. He's seeing his selfish ways. He's seeing the inclination of his heart. And like I said, ask yourself, what, what do you see in the inclinations of your heart? Is this something where you can just pull up your bootstraps and fix it? Something you can do yourself? I don't think so. This is something we, the, the Word teaches us. We need to rely on God alone. And you alone is my salvation. Nowhere else. I can't do it myself. I hope some of you, as you, as you pray and you meditate on God's Word, that you, you hear this in your own prayers. I'm not preaching law here. I'm not saying, oh, you've got you to pray to God just like this. That's not what I'm, I'm saying. I'm saying that I hope the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you know it, has led your heart to see this. The study of God's word has led your heart in these ways. Like the psalmist has written for us here. Why does Paul call himself the chief of sinners? Because by the grace of God... He's been allowed to look inside himself. I don't think Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners because he's comparing himself to the people around him. No, I think Paul's saying, I'm the chief of sinners because Paul can see into his own heart. Yes, he can see outwardly some things in other people, but Paul's not comparing himself to others. He's looking within. 
God, by his grace, has let him look into himself. And what Paul sees makes him profess that I'm the worst sinner of all. You ever look into yourself and think, oh, my heart is black and ugly. I don't know if you do, but I do. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, remember what he said in that song? Yeah, Deb, a wretch. I'm a wretch. The grace of God saved a wretch like me. We're in a spiritual battle. And our enemy wants us to think that we can fix it ourselves. He's using our culture that tells us, oh, you got this, you can handle this. He's using that to make us think that, because that's good, right? Self-sufficient, take care of yourself. That's a good way to be in our culture. But when it comes to spiritual battles, if you, if you try to handle spiritual things like you try to handle earthly things, problems, big problems. For example, I mean, I, I just want to, as I, as I read this psalm, I see that the Lord is everything to the psalmist here. And I keep referring to him as the psalmist. Some of you might be saying, well, why doesn't he say it's David? Well, because I don't know for sure if David wrote this. Most people, the, many people do think that David wrote this. In fact, when I was talking to Pastor David the other day, he said, we were talking about this text, and he said something about David. I said, David, what do you mean David? And he said, oh, yeah, that's true, David. We don't know if David wrote that. Um, Charles Spurgeon talked often about he, in fact, I was reading Charles Spurgeon's commentary, and he, he thinks that David wrote this, but we don't know. Many others think Ezra, some think Daniel. We don't know for sure who wrote Psalm 119. We know it's amazing and beautiful, and it very well could be David. Sounds a lot like him, but we don't know for sure. But, but to this psalmist, whether it's David or whoever it is, the word of the Lord is everything to him. So, for instance, I just want to use this illustration. Let's just say I had a rope here. To get you to understand what I think the psalmist sees in the, in the word of the Lord, let's just say I had a rope here and I took it and casted it out in the middle of the aisle. Who do you think would get up first and run out there and grab that rope? Nobody. I don't know that anybody would. I think you'd all look at me like wondering, like Adam's laughing right now. What's he doing throwing a rope out in the middle? But imagine now, Adam, if we were in the ocean working on a fishing boat for some reason and the big waves and a big storm came and Adam falls over the side now Adam's in the water and I go get that rope and I throw the rope down to Adam you know I think Adam sees in that rope everything to him he doesn't care about anything else in the world he only cares about that rope forget everything you can have all my money all everything I just want that rope and that's what I see in the psalmist today God is his rope God is his everything because he's looked into God's law, and the more he sees, the more he wants. I don't hear it all. I'm good, Lord, I got this. I don't hear that. I hear dependence on the Lord. Hmm. I lost my place here. <laughs> yeah, Holy Spirit, guide me back to my place. It worked. Here, here I am. Uh, um... No, we don't hear him asking. We hear him asking God to do it. He knows he needs God to incline his heart to love. And I hope you know that you need God to incline your heart. Yes, we can do. In fact, one of, somebody said this morning that I thought was so great. Was that, uh, who was that that said that this morning? About, oh, it was Mike. Where's Mike at? Mike. I loved it when you were saying that prayer this morning, how the world has taught us the definition of love. I mean, and that's the truth. I mean, we think of love as the world defines love. God's talking about a whole different kind of love. I thought that was an amazing insight this morning in that prayer, and it really it touched my heart. Um, God, uh, we need God to incline our hearts to love like that. We, we can't love like that without 
his heart. In fact, I heard this story, I was listening to a sermon this week, and I heard this amazing story about the, just the power of God's transforming love. It was, uh, maybe some of you remember back in like, I think it was 2006, there was a shooting in uh, Pennsylvania where some, a, ma- a married man went into an Amish school and shot, a, shot about a half a dozen kids in that school. And it kind of, from what I heard in the sermon, it kind of became scandalous. It's talking about it on the news and stuff because some of the Amish people went over and started to comfort the, within hours of the shooting. And some of these people who had lost children themselves went over and started um, comforting the woman, the wife of the shooter. Even though they had lost their own children. I mean, that's the love of God in your heart. I, I can't imagine if I lost one of my children. I can't imagine if somebody walked into their school and shot them. I can't imagine wanting to, worrying about that person's spouse on my own. Only, only by the love of God in me would that be possible. But it was kind of scandalous. People started talking about it on TV and radio. Was this, is this right? Should these Amish people have done this? What are they doing? That's the world's view on love. So, incline my heart, Lord, incline my heart. Well, let's just look at Ezekiel chapter 36. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The psalmist knew he had a God he could trust and rely on. We depend on God also to teach us and lead us, but we depend on him also to change our hearts and guard our minds. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. I know nobody here has a problem with that. Turn my eyes from worthless things. Again, more introspection from the psalmist here, more wonderful introspection that the Lord has given him. By God's grace, he sees that his eyes betray him. His eyes are inclined to look at things that are worthless. Someday will be dust. They're going to lead him to death if he's not careful. I mean, right? Genesis chapter 3. Let's see what, what it says there. Genesis 3, 6. Eve saw the fruit and that it was good for food and a delight to her eyes. That's why we all got in this mess in the first place. It was a delight to her eyes. So she took it and ate it, even though the Lord had warned her not to. In this case, what the eye delighted in wasn't just worthless, like the psalmist said. It actually brought death and separation from God. The psalmist knows that his eyes can see things that can corrupt his heart. Charles Spurgeon said this, that I read this week. Charles Spurgeon called the eyes... These two little things in the middle of your head, right by your brain. They're right next to your brain, so you think they'd be really smart, right? Charles Spurgeon said this about the eyes. He says, they are the favorite gate for the incoming of Satan's allurements. You ever looked at your eyes as a gate? A gate to death? That's what he's saying. He's saying, it's Satan's favorite gate. Are you praying to God for your eyes? Are you taking care of your eyes? The things that they see. I was out to dinner with a friend of mine and, and his daughter and some of their friends a few weeks ago as I was traveling for work and uh, this girl had her phone and she kept uh, picking her phone up every once in a while and then she'd kind of pucker her lips and kiss and I saw a flash and then 
she'd put the phone down every couple minutes. I said, what, what's going on? She said, I'm Snapchatting, I'm snapping. It's a, an app you can have on your phone called Snapchat, where that's how people communicate now. They, they send images of themselves, a lot of times, you know, making kissy faces and sending it back and forth. But man, our, we're, an, we're a society of images, thousands and thousands and thousands of images coming across our eyes every single day. Have you thought about praying for your eyes and guarding your eyes? I mean, the images that we see, they, psalmist says they can lead to death. read a study a few years ago that in the church, in the church, this was a few years ago, I hope it's, hope it's better, but I don't know. In the church, 70% of men view pornography fairly regularly, according to a study I read about five years ago. Now, I remember that same study said 30% of women did. I mean, it's so available now to corrupt our eyes, corrupt our hearts. We, we now probably more than ever have images like no other time in history that can totally lead our hearts away from the Lord. Aren't just worthless they're bringing us in, into death. So do you protect your eyes? And just kind of on a practical note here, I just wanted to notice that it, to note that if you've ever struggled with pornography or if you have any urges with pornography to look at pornography or watch pornography, there are many different uh, accountability sites out there that you can get an accountability partner, someone who will... Um, uh, the, how it works is they'll monitor your, your devices and they'll send reports to whoever your trusted comrade is who will then call you out if you see something on the report that shows that you've uh, looked at a site you shouldn't look at. So if you've ever had any inclination, I just want to stop here and say, please take the time to, to invest in that if you can. Invest in something like that to protect and guard your eyes. It's coming straight from the Word of God here. Our eyes are so important. God gave us eyes to do good works, to see others in need, to love others, and to love himself. Not to just, they're not just our pleasure tools for our pleasure. God wants to give us the ultimate pleasure, but we need to have those eyes, and we don't have to have eyes, I guess, physical eyes to see that, but we need, we need God to cover our eyes and protect our eyes so that they can serve him and not just ourselves. We depend on God to change our hearts and guard our minds. Verse 38, Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. When I walk in the bank and I ask for some money, they, uh, they usually say, hey, can we see your ID? Like a lot of times back in the old days, the small town banks, they didn't have to do that. But now in big cities, they usually, the tellers usually don't know you very well. Especially now with online banking, we don't uh, have to go in the bank very often. So when you do, they're going to, good chance they're going to ask you to confirm yourself, right? When you go to use your ATM, you have to confirm who you are by putting in a pin that shows who you are. The psalmist here is saying, God, confirm to your servant your promise. I think this is more introspection here. More introspection. Another tremendously important introspection. He's struggling sometimes. Sometimes, Lord, I need you to confirm your promise to me. Sometimes I doubt. Sometimes I, the things that I see, he just asked us to pray for his eyes. Sometimes the things that I see, Lord, make me unsure. Confirm to me your promise that you may be feared. I think the psalmist has introspection here. I think he's saying, sometimes, Lord, I need confirmation. Does anybody in here ever struggle? I mean, we see things all the time. Sometimes, like I, I preached last time, when, when the disciples, when people looked at Jesus on the cross, it looked like it was over. Things don't always, from the Christian perspective, look like we're winning. And the psalmist acknowledges here, hey, confirm to me, Lord. Sometimes I struggle. Confirm to my heart. Show me. Help me to see that this isn't the right thing that I'm doing. Go take a pro-life stance today. 
There could be a mountain of abuse heaped on you about that. You don't respect women. So things like that come piling on you. And you start to question, am I really right about this? Should I really be taking this stance for God to protect human life? Because 800 people just came at me and told me that I was a, a women hater and I didn't believe in free rights for women. This is the kind of stuff that happens when you're a Christian. You look at Christians in other countries. Sometimes they, they might get rattled. When, when you're the only Christian walking around trying to teach the gospel to people, and everybody's, sometimes people are assaulted, beaten. Is this, am I right, Lord? How come everybody else thinks something else and I think this? You ever struggle with that? Psalmist says, I struggle. Lord, confirm to me your word. Confirm to me that, that your ways are the perfect ways that lead to life. Remember, I actually didn't even go over this with you. If we were to go back and look in the psalm, if you go read Psalm 119, you'll see that this person's in a battle himself. He talks about being smeared with lies. He talks about my enemies lay in wait for me around the corner. This person's within a battle. He's, he's well familiar with persecution in battle, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 is. If you go through the psalm, you'll see many, many verses about what he's endured. I got to admit, sometimes... I pray to the Lord, confirm to me, Lord, that I'm doing what's right. Sometimes I, I know what, what, what I've been through and how far I have to go to serve the Lord. And uh, I look at others sometimes and I, I think, man, I remember when I was just like that. I wanted nothing to do with the Word of God when I was younger. Wasn't interested in it at all. In fact, I, I, I'll, I'll share this story with you. I remember the guy that, that uh, first really told me about the gospel. He caught me singing. I was out singing uh, some music. I was a security guard. I was singing, thought nobody was around, and this maintenance guy showed up, got right up next to me before I even noticed. I was singing so loud. And he said, oh, you like country music, huh? I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He goes, oh, I like gospel music. And I remember thinking, oh, man, he's going to tell me about Jesus. Well, that's exactly what he did. And within a couple weeks, he had me reading my Bible, and I was calling him six times a day, asking, hey, what does this mean? What does this mean? This was 30 years ago. Sometimes when I, I look at others, I, 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 my faith wavers. And, I, and I'm hesitant to approach them to, to tell them about the Lord. Maybe it's fear of persecution or just thinking, man, I know how, how long, it's, how much work God's had to put into me to get me where I'm at. Could that guy ever get there? I don't know. Could he ever come to know the Lord? Sometimes I waver like that. I don't know if you guys do. But we can't do that. We just heard today, Matthew 28. Go share the gospel with all the nations. God has confirmed his word to us, hasn't he? We need to be confident in that. Again, as we look at this text, I don't hear at all an attitude of, I got this. I hear a total submission and relying on the Lord. I hear this person confessing everything, all the weaknesses that he has. That's what I hear in this text. Instead of hearing, I got this, I hear, help me, Lord, teach me, Lord, give me understanding, lead me, change my heart, guard my eyes, give me faith to trust you and to fear you and wholly depend on you. The psalmist also says here, confirm, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. What does it say about fearing the Lord in the Bible? Here's a couple verses. Psalm 9, or Proverb 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Another verse says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The Bible makes it clear that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And the fear of the Lord keeps us. A fountain of life. 
I argue today that the evil one doesn't just ask to sift Peter. He hasn't asked to sift Peter. Have you ever considered that maybe the evil one has asked to sift you? You ever thought about that? Going back to our talk on spiritual battles, if you think you've got this yourself, have you ever considered that maybe he, he asked to sift you like wheat like he did to Peter? Or maybe like Job, he said, Lord, can I just take everything from Job? you ever considered that the Lord has been asked that by, by our enemy, Satan? you ever considered that he's come after you personally? We depend on God to guard our hearts and to change our hearts and to guard our, guard our minds. The psalmist is showing here that he is poor in spirit. And Jesus taught us that the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the, th- the last thing, the last couple of verses we're going to look at here, 39 and 40. The third thing I have for you today is we depend on the Lord. We depend on the Lord to take away our disgrace and to provide, to provide us with a new life in his righteousness. To provide us with a new life in his righteousness. Verse 39, the psalmist writes, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. There's some debate here. If I looked in some commentaries, there's some debate here. Whose who's reproach, whose disgrace does he dread? Some seem to think that it's the reproach of man that he dreads. That God's ways are good, he's out serving God, doing good, doing God's ways, and that, that he, he dreads the reproach of man. Then there's others who think, no, he, he dreads the reproach of God. Because he sees within himself his own sinful and shameful ways. And he dreads the reproach of God. Well, here's what a couple other translations have to say. And I really like the way the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts this one. It says, help me. Here's how the New Living Translation does verse 39. So ESV says, turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. And the New Living Translation says, help me abandon my shameful ways, for your regulations are good. Again, more introspection. If if that's true, if that's the way it is, he's looked within himself and he considers his ways shameful. Have any of you ever considered your ways shameful? As we read this stanza, I think the psalmist fears the reproach of God, is what I think he fears. But that's up for a good study. Anybody can study that and see. Who, whose reproach is he talking about there? But, but if, if it is the shameful ways of himself before God, he believes one, well, the two things that we can say for sure is we see a contrast here. God's ways are good. His ways are shameful. And he knows he will not be able to keep the way of the Lord without his help. So what can we say for sure about verse 39? A couple things we can say for sure. One, we can say that he dreads reproach and only God can take away that reproach. Whether it's God's reproach or man's reproach, one of the two, those are the only things. God's the only one who can take that away. And the second thing that we can say for sure is that he, again, confirms to us that the ways of the Lord are good. The ways of the Lord are good. Talking about God taking away our reproach, God taking away our disgrace. Jeremiah 31 says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God is the one who can take away our disgrace, our reproach. So we depend on God to take that away, and we depend on God for new life in His righteousness. Verse 40, final verse. Behold, psalmist writes, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. In your righteousness. The wholesomeness of the ways of God has revealed to the psalmist the shame in his ways and the dead nature of his heart. I mean, would you know coveting wasn't wrong? 
right? Would you know coveting wasn't wrong if the ways of God hadn't, hadn't shown you that? The ways of God have, sh- have shown him what his heart's like. The heartfelt understanding of the goodness of God makes it natural to long after him. Again, as I've said before, the more we come to know the Lord, the more we will long after him. The psalmist sees that this righteousness, he sees this righteousness, and he's saying to us that this righteousness that God has with that God has can bring me life. Isn't that what he's asking here? Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. He's not relying on himself again. He's relying on the righteousness of God. He believes that, that God and God's ways are the only way that he'll have life. Has he come to know this on his own? No, only with the help of the Lord. He needed to be taught. He needed his heart changed. He needed his eyes protected. He, he needed help with doubt. He needed help with all of his shameful ways. He couldn't do this on his own. He's basically telling us, I'm dead. I need you, I need you and your ways to revive me and bring me into life. Charles Spurgeon says of this verse, onward in the heavenly life is the call of this verse. The psalmist here declares to us that he believes that the righteousness of God is so powerful that it can revive his heart and give life to his dead spirit. Do you believe that? Is he right? Can the righteousness of God do that? I see some heads shaking. Yes. Let's go on the other side of the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who was righteous, Jesus Christ the Lord, into sin, so that the sinful, so that we could become the righteousness of God. I think uh, this text here in Philippians does a wonderful job of summing, summing up the ways of God. Listen to what God has done for the sinful man. Second, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Having this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but no, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of a man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the loving merciful, glory-deserving, perfect way of God that the psalmist is writing about today. So as we wind down here, I want to go back to the beginning. Remember, I shared a few stories about Peter. In the Peter, I called him the poster child for Mr. Self-Sufficiency. Well, listen to what Peter wrote in his letter in the New Testament. Remember, now we're on the other side of the cross. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. Listen to what the Lord has done to Peter. He writes, humble yourselves. Does that sound like the Peter we talked about earlier? First two words, humble yourselves. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Verse 7, he says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you see the psalmist casting anxiety on the Lord today? And then finally in verse 8, here is, 
Peter confirming that he's had a real change of heart. He's confirming the spiritual battle that we talked about the last two weeks. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Has Peter made a full 360 turn from the battle against the flesh to now saying, yeah, there's an enemy out there. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Do you believe Jesus was righteous? Do you believe that his righteousness can bring you new life? I hope you do. If you believe today and you see the need for a new heart, I beg you to ask him. There's elders here in the church like Mike who was up front and Chris. There's many people here today. If you've never known this until today, that you can talk to after church. They would love to talk to you about this. How Jesus' righteousness can take the place of yours. Remember, this isn't a battle against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. We're not self-sufficient. We need to humble ourselves. We need the Lord if we're going to come through this. That's why I had the call to worship today was 1 Kings 18.37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people, this is Elijah after the battle. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It's the Lord who turns the hearts back.